On this episode, I'm in the room with Carl Truman discussing the life and lessons of Martin Luther. Welcome to In the Room, episode number 36. I'm Ryan Hughley, and if you're listening for the first time, I'm the founding and lead pastor of Redemption Bible Church just outside Chicago. You can find lots of ways for you and I to connect online by visiting my blog at ryanhughley.com. That's H-U-G-U-L-E-Y. In the Room is your opportunity to eavesdrop on my conversations with interesting people. Every week I sit down with people of varied backgrounds, perspectives, and vocations, and I talk with pastors, professors, authors, and artists about their stories, their crafts, and how they do what they do. On this episode, I'm in the room with Carl Truman. Carl is the professor of historical theology and church history at Westminster Theological Seminary. He co-hosts the Mortification of Spin podcast, and he's the author of numerous books, including the most recent entitled Luther on the Christian Life. In my conversation with Carl, we discuss why church history matters, why we should all read biography, and what we have to learn as modern-day Christians from the amazing life of Martin Luther. Now get comfortable and come on in the room for my conversation with Carl Truman. Well, Dr. Truman, welcome to In the Room. So thankful to have you on. Uh, I know that you have uh, a number of balls that you juggle, so really appreciate you taking the time for this. And uh, I would love to start with you telling me a little bit about where you're from and uh, what home life was like for you growing up. Okay. I was. Well, first of all, it's uh, great to be on. Thanks very much for inviting me to join you uh, for the hour. Uh, I, I'm from the United Kingdom, born and brought up in England. Uh, brought up over in the West, what we call the West Country, over in Gloucestershire. So I had a fairly rural upbringing, a uh, very happy home, not a church-going home. I became okay. a Christian sometime between the age of 17 and 21, I think. Okay. I had a good friend at school who was the son of the local charismatic Anglican vicar. All right. And he took me along to hear Billy Graham preach, and I became interested in the gospel uh, through that. And it was really through reading the books of Jim Packer, J.I. Packer, that I... Uh, ultimately came to understand the gospel. So it was not a, a sudden flash of lightning for me. It was a process that took uh, a number of years. All right. Um, studied at the University of Cambridge and the University of Aberdeen, uh, married to Katrina with two adult sons, been living in Philadelphia, just outside Philadelphia since 2001, where I teach at Westminster Theological Seminary. Excellent. So at what point did you know that you wanted to be a, did you always know you wanted to be a pastor and professor? Because I know that you kind of do both of those things, or how did, how did your kind of call to ministry happen? <laughs> I still don't want to do both of okay. them, I have to say. <laughs> uh, I, I was originally uh, a, a straight-down-the-line academic. My okay. first two tenure jobs, one was at the University of Nottingham, and then one was back at my alma mater, the University of Aberdeen. Okay. Where I, I, while I was in Aberdeen, I also served on the session, that's the, the elder board of yep. a local Presbyterian church. I was just a straight-down-the-line academic. Westminster approached me with a vacancy around about 99, 2000, and uh, I came out in 2001. Again, I simply saw that in some ways as an extension of my academic career. I was still teaching people church history. Got involved in a local church, and the church hit some financial difficulties around about 2009, 2010, and couldn't afford a full-time pastor. So, as I was already ordained as what the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, my denomination calls a teacher, I was really teaching at the seminary, Uh, I also took the call to the church at that point. So I preach in the church most weekends. I I have overall pastoral responsibility for the church, but it's um, 
financially anyway it's a part-time thing okay. so i'm i'm full-time at the seminary they pay my pension fund and my uh, health health insurance yeah and uh the church pays for my kids to go to college essentially yeah. that's uh, that's how it works yeah. out do you see a fundamental <laughs> you, you know you so you teach at the university and you preach at the church do you see a fundamental difference between those two things between obviously the content can be different but yeah. do you see a fundamental difference between preaching and teaching Oh yes, I I think when the, the the idea of a lecturer, the idea of a lecturer, I think is to convey information and to provoke people to think. I like it when students push back against something I say. Uh-huh. I like uh, lectures to be more of a dialogue, sometimes a bit of an argument. I think preaching is proclamation of God's word. It's much yeah. less of a, a a sort of confrontational conversation, yeah. if you like. It's awkward when people a, yell out while you're preaching. It is indeed. Yes. That's why I'm a Presbyterian. We don't do that sort <laughs> <Yeah>. of thing. <laughs> um, preaching is much more of a thus saith the Lord. Yes. Not to say that the man in the pulpit, what he says, shouldn't be examined by people in the congregation to see if it's in accordance with the scriptures, but it's much more of an authoritative position, I yeah. think. And you're aiming to, my, my overall purpose as a preacher is to bring people to maturity in Christ. My purpose as a lecturer is to make people into good church historians, yeah. and they're two very different things. Yeah. So, on that that topic of of church history, I want to talk a little bit about that. But when did you begin to love a? Did you always have kind of a passion for history growing up? Not really. No. In fact, I, I dropped history as a subject while I was at school. Okay. Didn't didn't like it at all. It was only when I got to to Cambridge and was doing classics, and had a very good and interesting uh, history teacher. At Cambridge, most of the teaching is done one-on-one with, with, a, tu- with a tutor or supervisor, which is it's, it's a great luxury, but I had a, an incredibly clever and fascinating supervisor who got me interested in history in general. And then uh, the church history was just the, the, the confluence of, of what became a real passion for history with my passion for the church and the, and the history of, of Christianity. Okay. So your title at the university is your professor of historical theology and church history, um, but you do also pastor uh, at your church, Cornerstone, Presbyterian, part-time. Yeah. What do you find most difficult about doing both? Time. Uh, I, I think it's... It's hard to to juggle too many things, and some weeks it's easy. Other weeks, I may have a lot of meetings at the seminary, and I may have a couple of pastoral issues that need to be dealt with, and they yeah. can really take a lot of time. Yeah. So, I think the thing that, I won't say it keeps me awake at night, but the thing that I would fret over most is... Do I have enough time to devote to preparing my sermons? Yeah. And do I really practically care for people as much as I should in the church? I'm lucky to work with six wonderful elders who all shoulder considerable pastoral responsibility as well. And I get paid and five of those guys don't get paid. So they're the guys I think who are holding down jobs and stretching themselves. So for me, it's a, it's a time issue more than anything else. Do you think though that having a foot, um, as firmly planted in the church as you do right now makes you a better preparer of what many will be you know, future pastors? Does it help you in that regard as a professor, do you think, or no? Absolutely. I, I think there is no substitute if you're teaching men for ministry and men and women for, for leadership in Christ church. There's no substitute for actually being involved in regular church ministry yourself. It, it's changed some of the questions I've asked. I mean, later we're going to talk about my, my Luther book. Uh-huh. Uh, in, in some ways, that the Luther book 
is shaped by my pastoral experience because for the first time in my life, I came to study a church history figure with a view thinking, well, how is this guy a pastor? Right. That interests me now in a way that it wouldn't have done maybe 10 years ago because yeah. it's part of my daily life. And I yeah. want to know how other people did it and what insights they have for me. Well, apparently because you uh, are bored and have so much free time, you also <laughs> co-host a podcast, uh, oh, Mortification yes. of Spin. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I've just listened to uh, a couple episodes, super interesting. But how would you describe the format of your podcast? Um, <laughs> that's an interesting question. We're just three friends having fun is the bottom line. Okay. It's myself, my, my good friend and, and fellow pastor, Todd Pruitt, and then Amy Bird, uh, who is a... A, a writer and a, and a blogger. We just get together. We talk about things that are of interest to us, and and we we just have fun. To me, that the podcast is is a hobby that's become more successful than we ever expected. Partly yeah. because we just did it for the entertainment value we got out of it, and right. the fact that it's proved helpful to some people is is a great boon. But I have to say. We've done it. We did the podcast for selfish reasons. We wanted to have some fun. No, me too. I understand that. Podcast <laughs> is, it's interesting. Podcast is in, is experiencing a very interesting resurgence in popularity wow. right now. And I'm curious, as someone who hosts a podcast, what is it about podcasting right now that you think is so appealing to people? Particularly, um, you know, the, the conversational format ones, something like In the Room yeah. or Mortification of Spin. I mean, you guys basically sit for... 30 minutes and have a conversation. What is it that's yeah. so appealing about that right now, do you think? I think there are a number of things. One, I think the, the advent of things like iTunes and, and the iPod means that people can download this stuff easily, get easy access to it. Yes. And it fits. We, we get a lot of feedback from people who will use it when they're commuting yep. or will listen to it in the half hour after they've dropped the kids off at school and they're grabbing a cup of coffee. So I think the podcast fits a certain rhythm of life. If you're going to read something, you've got to sit and read it. Yeah. But you can be making a cup of coffee or a cup of tea while listening to something on, on iTunes. So I think it it fits the rhythm of life. I also think the the casual atmosphere is endearing to people. People like to eavesdrop. Uh -huh. I, I It galls me to compare podcasts to reality TV. <laughs> yeah. But, but I think there's we all have a little bit of a they have a harmless voyeur about us. We like to eavesdrop on other people's conversations. We like to know something about other people's lives behind the scenes. And podcasts have a kind of false intimacy about them that, that I think appeals to that as well. Yeah. Uh, and thirdly, I think they're a great format for modeling good Christian discussion. I think uh, blogs, good blogs are excellent, but a lot of what goes on online has degenerated into personal name calling and, and nastiness. Yeah. My impression of podcasts is because it's real human beings interacting conversationally. The level of nastiness is, is by and large reduced considerably. Podcasts yeah. seem on the whole to be a more civilized form of discussion than the comments threads connected to, to blogs. Yeah, no, I think that's a really important insight. I think it's easy in, in written format to talk about people you know, when you're talking to them and it has a human face attached to yeah. it, it's just far, you, you just, you have to be far meaner to be able yeah. to do that comfortably. So I think that's yeah. an important insight. Yeah. George Orwell makes a comment somewhere. He's, he's sort of attacked somebody in print, but then he writes them a letter after he's met them and he says, you know, now I've looked into your eyes, you're a human being. Yeah. 
And even though I'm still going to be critical of you, I'm going to be critical in a slightly different way because yeah. I know that you're more than the ideas I read about on a page, your flesh yeah. and blood. Yeah, uh, I think that's good. Well, I want to talk about... Um, you know, history as it's something that's dear to your heart. And uh, history in general is a sadly neglected subject for a lot of people. And, and in particular, I would argue that church history is something that is neglected by a great many Christians. Um, and so I wonder, why, why do you think history in general, maybe even biographies are, uh, in, in particular, are an important subject for Christians to understand and grow in? Sure, it's a very good question. It's, you know, I have to... If we got seven hours, I could give you something yeah. approaching a, a, an adequate answer on that. I would say there are a number of reasons why Christians should be interested in history. Uh, first of all, Christianity is a historical religion. The yes. Lord has preserved his church throughout history. And although as Protestant evangelicals, we, we obviously place a certain unique authority on Scripture, we should also acknowledge that, that the great men and women of the past have done important things, have had important thoughts, have shaped the church world which, which we live in today. And the more we understand about how they've shaped us, the easier, in fact, it is both to critique them in light of Scripture and also to appreciate them in light of Scripture. So I think there's a, an almost a liberating dimension to learning about history. It allows you to understand why you think the way you do. That has one, I mean, one obvious advantage for Christian in relating to the wider world is we talk a lot about contextualization. We talk a lot about cultural engagement. Well, history is the great laboratory of that. And understanding our own history sets us up well to engage in that kind of thing yeah. in the present. Secondly, I think history is a good way of highlighting to us what's important and what isn't. Yeah. Um, the doctrine of the Trinity is vitally important. When you study the history of the doctrine of the Trinity, it starts to make sense as to why men were willing to split the church over this, why Athanasius was willing to go into exile. When you study the Reformation, it becomes clear why men and women were willing to, on both sides of the question, Catholic and Protestant, willing to stake their lives on certain things. You begin to see why some doctrines are crucially important, and others are of secondary or even tertiary importance. Yeah. I also think there is, there's a, history can be a great teacher by negative example. You know, for example, again, we're going to talk about Luther a bit later. You know, Luther was a great man in many ways, but his strengths, his power of personality that allowed him to stand so decisively against his enemies, all on his own at certain points, made him somewhat, we would say, pig-headed. Uh -huh. And when he got hold of the wrong side of an argument, he could do terrible damage. Yeah. And, and learning about Luther, not just as hero, but also as, as anti-hero, I think can allow us not only to avoid the idolization of Christian heroes of the past, but also provokes us to reflect on ourselves and our, and our heroes of the present day to see not only their strengths, but also their weaknesses. Yeah. Um, and finally, I think you, you mentioned biographies. I think biographies are a great way of getting into Christian history for Christians, a number of reasons. One, every person lives in a certain period of time. So when you read a biography, you're also getting more general history as well. But also, there's an inspirational factor to this as well. Sure. Um, when you read the, the, the biographies of the great men and women of God of the past, uh, one doesn't have to idolize them to realize that they did things that are inspiring, worthy sometimes of emulation. Uh, 
worthy of reflection. Um, you know, in America at the moment, we, we're facing significant changes, I think, to the constitutional, the practical constitutional position of the church relative to the state and civil liberties and civil rights issues are coming to the forefront. And there can be a great temptation, I think, for us to think of ourselves as suffering for the gospel in this situation. Yeah. Well, if you, if you read some books of what people in the past and even in the present have suffered for their faith, I think it puts our complaints, real though they are, in some kind of perspective. Absolutely. So history, maybe I could summarize all that by saying the great thing about history is it puts us and our age and our situation in perspective. Yeah. I think it's interesting how you said earlier that you didn't really so much connect to the importance of history until you had a, a teacher that really helped teach it in a way that was relevant and vibrant and enjoyable for you. So yeah. as you think about, let's just think about church history in general, are there uh, some books uh, that you would point to, and 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 thinking maybe less in terms of for for an academic or for a pa- yeah. pastor, but just an, a regular Christian who, you know, works a job and has a family. Is there a book or a couple of books that you would point to that said that are accessible and that will maybe ignite a fire in their heart for the importance of church history? Yeah, I would say that the book that that um, fired my imagination was "Here I Stand" by Roland Bainton. It's it's probably 50, 60 years old now. It's his biography of Martin Luther. It's a great book. It's, it is a great book. You, I mean, you obviously read it. It's very readable. It reads, I mean, Luther lived an exciting life and Bainton's book reads like a, a Hollywood movie script. Yeah. It's, it's a very exciting, very easy read. But also, Bainton was a very learned man. So you're actually getting a lot of other information there as well. So it certainly suggests Bainton uh, on Luther. Herman Selderhouse's little biography of John Calvin is a good one. Herman writes with a certain sense of humor that I know some of the more doer and serious-minded Calvinists were concerned that, that Herman made a few too many jokes in that book. Okay. I like jokes. Yeah. So again, I would There's recommend There's not enough funny Calvinists a, either, so we can take a few of those. Cal- we need a Calvinist Chesterton somewhere down yeah, the line. Yeah, that's true. And uh, so Herman's book on, on Calvin. In terms of great sweeps of church history, uh, Nicholas Needham uh, has written, uh, I think there are four volumes. It's a five-volume series, I think, or a four-volume series and the three volumes. Uh, uh, 2,000 Years of Christ's Power. Uh, Nick, ne- Nick Needham writes very readably. They're thick books. The covers are absolutely ghastly. They look of <laughs> They look as if they're designed by a colorblind psychopath of some kind. <laughs> okay. uh, we'll look past don't, that. Don't be put off by the cover. Okay. You may want to wear sunglasses when you pick them. Okay. But the, the text is both, it's grounded in great learning, but is, is very, very readable. And okay. I would recommend anybody who is a serious layperson wanting to, to get a grasp of the sweep of church history, need them, 2,000 Years of Christ's Power. That's the place to, the place to go. All right. Well, you've you've written a biography about a particular historical figure. I wonder, outside of Luther, who are some historical figures that you really admire and why? Yeah, um, it's a number of them. Uh, outside the Bible, I presume, yeah, yeah. we're talking here. Uh, I think in the early church, uh, Athena- there was a guy called Athanasius and his three successors, the Cappadocian fathers, who were crucial in... Uh, the the battle for the trinity in the the mid to late fourth century i think augustine late fourth early fifth century writer is just fundamental it doesn't matter whether you're a christian wrestling with 
Christian experience, the doctrine of the Trinity, the nature of sin, the nature of politics and how the church should relate to the state. Augustine has something to say about it. So, Augustine is somebody that I spend a lot of time reading. Moving forward in history, Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages, I think, uh, though I disagree significantly with certain areas of his theology, Thomas Aquinas had the most amazing grasp of the sweep of Christian doctrine. Uh, And then when we come to the Reformation, obviously Luther, Calvin, uh, John Owen, the the English Puritan, and also the 17th century, he was a sort of uh, an odd kind of Catholic thinker, Blaise Pascal, whose book The Thoughts or Pensee is an incredibly stimulating exploration of the relationship of Christian theology to life and culture. And then we move into the modern age, I guess, I would have to say... uh, uh, who cannot admire Spurgeon? Terrible exegete, but amazing, amazing preacher. <laughs> okay. uh, Martin, Martin Lloyd-Jones, J.I. Packer. These are the men, I think, that I would have to say in the last 100, 150 years that I would look to as, as really uh, significant for me in my, my yeah. own personal Christian life. Sorry to interrupt the conversation, but I wanted to share a simple way that you can help support In the Room. As you know, most weeks I'm talking with someone who's written a book about something. Now, I love books, and I know firsthand how expensive it can be to try to keep up with all the books that you'd like to read, including the ones that you hear about on this show. And this is why I'm so excited about our new partnership with Givingtons.com. Like Amazon, they sell books at discounted rates, but here's what's great for In The Room. When you buy a book through our store, we receive a portion of that sale to help continue bringing great weekly content. So for whatever featured book we're discussing on this week's episode, we receive a full $2. And for books from past episodes, we receive $1.25. Now, you've probably heard me say this before, but I want to help get this podcast to as many people as possible, and I need your help. So will you keep spreading the word on social media, and will you consider buying this week's book through givingtons.com? Just go to givingtons.com slash in the room. There you're going to find not only this episode's book, but books written by past guests as well. So check out our new store at givingtons.com slash in the room. Thanks so much for your help. And now back to the conversation. Well, there, there seems to be, uh, especially with historical figures, it, it can be easy because of the level of admiration that people feel. They can, <clears throat> they can assume an almost godlike status. Mm. And so I wonder just practically, how can we go about admiring people of the past without idolizing them? It's a tough one because there's a tendency with all of us when we have a hero to try to excuse their faults even as we, we play up their virtues. We, we give them credit for their virtues and we blame their faults on other people, yeah, that's true. generally speaking. Yep. Uh, I think a good, honest grasp of somebody's biography is very helpful and a, a self-conscious reflection on our own convictions as, as Christians. We believe that everybody's sinful. Yeah. And therefore, we shouldn't be intimidated by the fact that, that Luther wrote some hateful stuff on the Jews, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have to approve of that. We can, we can see that as, as the most reprehensible thing. But I think we can also see it as part and parcel of Luther being a sinner. And um, so, I'm, I'm a, you know, it's, in some ways it has to be learned. We, we all have a tendency to make our heroes into, into idols. But I think an honest, upfront approach to their biography set against the background of a good theological anthropology where we understand 
the role of sin, even in our greatest heroes' lives, is the place to start. That's good. Well, I want to talk about Luther. Your new book is called Luther on the Christian Life, and uh, you've even mentioned a a couple of the biographies about Martin Luther that have been written. And so I'm curious, um, with a number of of good ones on his life written, why another one? And and what what is it that makes yours distinct? What was kind of your angle on his life? Sure. Good question. The book, in some ways, it's, it's not intended primarily as a biography. I sort of deal with the, 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 the sweep of biography in the first chapter. Yep. There is a biographical thread to it, though, and, and to each chapter. And what I wanted to explore was how Luther understood the Christian life from the perspective of both of himself as a Christian believer and as a pastor ministering to other people and trying to help them manage as Christians in the world in which they found themselves. So, it's interesting that there's almost nothing written on Luther as pastor. There's a collection of essays in in English that uh, my friend uh, Tim Wengert edited for for Erdmann's, and there are a couple of books in German on Luther's care of souls. But by and large, there is, is almost nothing on Luther's understanding of the pastorate. So, if, if I make a unique contribution, it's that I wanted to look at Luther through the lens of this man spends most hours of the week as a pastor. Yeah. It's odd that that is the one thing that's been most neglected in the writing about yeah. him. Let's try to put that back central to the Luther story uh, in a way that I think he himself would have seen it as central to his story. Why do you think uh, that Martin Luther is such a fascinating character. I mean, obviously he accomplished some pretty significant things, but yeah. there is a, 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 an obsession with Luther that, that many people, he does, he reads like, it's like a movie. Um, yeah. and so what is it do you think is so fascinating about him? I mean, his story is a, a somewhat romantic one in, in the sort of the true sense of the word in that he's this guy who on the surface seems to come out of nowhere, faces down the mass powers of the empire, shatters the church founds a denomination and shapes Protestantism down to the present day. So, as you said, he achieves uh, an awful lot. Uh, The events of his life are very exciting. I mean, this is a man who's kidnapped by his own man, who lives incognito for a while. This is a man who's involved in putting down riots. Uh, He's also a man who writes a lot about himself, which uh, can be an obnoxious trait in some ways. (laughs) Most of the time it is. Yeah, indeed. But from a historian's perspective, it's a gift because it gives us a lot of stuff to write about. Right. Uh, So there's that aspect to him as well. And he was a, he was a, a somewhat cavalier figure in the way that he operated. He was a, you know, when it come, came to opponents, he was a slash and burn kind of guy. When dealing with the ruthless, he was ruthless. When dealing with the weak, he was very, very gentle. But he's fun. I mean, this is when he goes after an opponent, he doesn't just, you know, he, he's not looking to win on points. He's looking to knock him down in round three. He's looking yeah. for the, he's going in for the kill. And that makes him a fun person as well. He's a flesh and blood, passionate human being. Yeah. What do you think are some of the most important lessons the average Christian can learn? Obviously, as pastors, we can learn a lot. As theologians, yep. we can learn a lot. But average Christian, what can they learn from the life and the example of Martin Luther? Um, from, the, from the example of Martin Luther, I think all Christians can learn the importance of those moments in our lives. I think that there are moments that come in all of our lives where we're faced with a line, and if we cross that line, there's no going back. Yeah. Sometimes we have to cross that line for good. Sometimes we're at a point where we, you know, it, we don't want to cross that line. It's bad. If you cross that line, there's no coming back. I think Luther's life presents a number of those occasions where 
everything's on the every, every everything's there you know everything's at stake for him and he's going to make a decision that is going to impact the whole of the rest of his life so there's that part of his life i think uh, also the way he you know if you, if you look at his theology what is his theology draw out for for ordinary people first of all i think the understanding of justification by grace through faith is a very important doctrine for the everyday believer it's what yeah. allows us to get out of bed in the morning totally i also think the the simple practical things of the christian life you know for luther when when luther's struggling with assurance or when he's faced with a congregant struggling with assurance what does he do he tells them to go to church and hear the word preached that they're not just going there to to hear a lecture they're not just getting from the word preached what they could get from reading a book the man preaching the word of god is confronting people with christ and him crucified yeah and there is a corporate confrontational aspect to christianity that I think it's very important. We live in a day when, hey, you can listen to a podcast. We can download sermons off the internet. Uh, we could be a Christian all by ourselves and think we're okay. Well, Luther would say absolutely not. Yeah. You've got to be part of the visible body of Christ under the word, taking the Lord's Supper with your brothers and sisters. There are corporate aspects to this that are crucial for how you experience Christianity as an individual. So that, I think, would be something that, that yeah, every good. Christian should take away as well. Well, despite his pretty amazing highlight reel, you've mentioned a couple ways that Luther was far from perfect. And so, yeah. kind of the other end of that question, what are some ways that we should really be careful to think differently than Luther did or behave differently than Luther did? Yeah. Well, the, 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 his, his approach to the peasants and the Jews are the two things that people most often cite. Uh, in 1525, there are these series of peasants' rebellions all across uh, the German-speaking lands of the empire. And they use Lutheran language. They picked up on Luther's language of freedom, but they see it in a political way. So yeah. they, they really identify themselves with Luther's Reformation. And this, this puts Luther in a difficult position because if his reformation becomes associated with social revolution then the emperor is going to crush it yeah but he's not going to allow that kind of thing to, to happen so luther comes out viciously against the peasants having been initially sympathetic he writes some vicious stuff really caused and calling for wholesale butchering of, of rebellious peasants does a similar thing for the jews in 1543 having been very pro-jew in the early 1520s which is very unusual for his age the unusual thing about him is he was pro-jew mm -hmm. By 1543, he's, he's very anti-Jew for, I think because they're not converting to Christianity and he feels they're hindering the return of Christ. But he writes this vicious stuff against the Jews, calling for their synagogues to be burned and them to be put to the sword. And, you know, in, certainly looking back through the lens of Auschwitz and the Third Reich, it looks almost prophetic. I don't think Luther envisaged the Third Reich, but it looks horribly prophetic in retrospect. What can we learn from those things? I think uh, we, well, we can learn generally that the greatest of men often have the greatest faults. Yeah, that's good. Uh, the evil that I can do will be much less than the evil that Luther can do because I'm just not as great a person. Now, he was a man who dominated the landscape, and that meant that when he did great things, people benefited more than they'll ever benefit from me. When he went wrong, they suffered more than yeah. they'll ever suffer uh, at my hands. Secondly, as I alluded to earlier on, I think what we see in Luther is, you know, his strength is his weakness. His strength was the fact that when he thought he was right, nothing that anybody could say could push him from that path. And that gave him the courage to stand up against the emperor and the pope. You know, when he's at the Diet of Worms, 
he could have been facing, you know, he knows that rebel theologians going to imperial councils don't have a very good mortality rate. They can be taken outside and executed yeah. just like that. His strength of personality serves him well there. But when it comes to the Jews, he's on the wrong side of things. And frankly, you know, when you're not willing to be swayed, critiqued, persuaded by others, when you're on the wrong side of things, you're going to go in an extreme and disastrous way. So I would say there's a lesson there for all of us to, to make sure that there are people in our lives who love us enough and have the backbone enough to get in our faces when they see us starting to, to go wrong. And we should have the humility at least to listen to them, even if having heard what they say, we come to the conclusion that they're wrong, as on yeah. occasion they may be. We should have the humility to listen to them. That was Luther's fatal flaw, I think, there. Yeah. So do you, are, do you think that uh, Luther was not a humble guy, despite all his gifts? Do you think humility in general was something that he struggled with? I think it's hard to imagine that a man as, as great as Luther didn't struggle with pride and humility as issues. On the other hand, I think... His willingness to mock himself indicates, you know, that self-deprecation that permeates his writings and his self-parodying indicates a man who is at least trying to deal with his pride by, by making himself a ridiculous figure. And we know that his wife was quite capable of, uh, I don't know that we ever have a record of her giving him a slap, yeah. but she was certainly able to give him a verbal slap. Yeah. He recounts one incident where he made a, uh, a comment about, uh, oh, I can't uh, think of, of who the, the Anabaptist was. Uh, I think it was um, Schwenkfeld, Caspar Schwenkfeld, who was a, a radical Anabaptist leader. And Luther made some comments about this man being you know, no better than a dog or something like that. And his wife, this was at the dinner table with other guests there, and his wife intervened and said, that's an inappropriate way for a minister to refer to another minister, whatever you think of his theology. And Luther immediately conceded the point. Yeah, And I think a man who can take a, a verbal slap from his wife in public like that and immediately back down is a man, there's certainly certain, some humility there, yeah. I think. Uh, yeah. Well, Luther seems to be one of those figures that um, a lot of people seem to claim and quote uh, regardless of maybe their theological convictions and whether or not they line up with Luther on everything. Yeah. And so I wonder... Why do you think there are certain people everyone claims? Uh, C.S. Lewis is kind of like that as well. Like yeah, regardless yeah. of your tribe, everybody's like Lewis is one of yeah. us. Um, yeah. So do you think that time removes people's faults? People are selective about what they know. But what is it about certain historical figures that we have this connection to and make claim on? Yeah. Well, I, I think there is a sense in which, you know, the church is universal. I'm a big Catholic Christian with a small C. Denominationally, I'm very narrow. I'm an Orthodox Presbyterian pastor. We are the, the Navy SEALs of the Presbyterian world. Okay. You know, we're, we're hardcore in our Presbyterian convictions. But yeah. I'm also a Catholic Christian, and I understand that the, the Lord has given many great men and women to the church, not all of whom line up with all of my views, but I feel able to use them when I feel they're consistent with Scripture. Yeah. I think it's a problem when we try to reinvent these people in, in, our, in our own image. I mean, C.S. Lewis is a great example that he's become the kind of great American evangelical. Well, no, really, he was an upper-class English 
upper class Irish, actually, yeah. uh, kind of Anglo-Catholic. Okay. And I, I think it's better to acknowledge these guys as being different from us because then we can learn from them. If we just reinvent people in our own image, all we're ever really doing is using them to justify our own positions. Sometimes it's better to acknowledge the differences because then we can learn, we can allow ourselves to be critiqued by their voices. Yeah. Um, so there's, I think there's a certain legitimacy to quoting these people because we're all Christians. The church is, is a Catholic church with a small c and therefore I'm comfortable quoting Christians of whatever, whatever stripe uh, yeah. they might be. Where we have to be, I, I think some lend themselves to quoting more than others because in the case of Lewis, I think there's a cool intellectual chic about sure. Lewis. You quote Lewis and you make yourself, you know, you've got that image of guy sitting in a pub smoking That's a right. pipe. Yeah. You know, expatiating to a group of adoring students all yeah. wearing tweed jackets and That's bow ties, right. quite probably. Um, so that there's a certain cool sheet to Lewis. I think with Luther, there is a, he's just very quotable. I mean, he's rude yeah. about people. You can quote Luther and it allows you to say the things you want to say without having to take responsibility yeah. for them. He would have he killed all, on Twitter. He would have been awesome oh, on Twitter. He and Spurgeon as well would have been phenomenal on Twitter. They, I, I despise Twitter as a medium, but I have to say, if there were two men who could be on Twitter, it would be Luther right. and uh, Luther and Spurgeon. <laughs> yes, th those one-liners. Um, of course, the danger there is that you can grab a, a, most of Luther's one good one-liners occur as parts of much longer, subtle arguments. Yes. So what we have often is the world is awash in Luther quotations, but very few people are actually really sure about precisely what the quotation would have meant in its original context. Yeah. So, uh, but you're right. I think there's actually a Luther insult generator on the, the net and you <laughs> click on really? Luther and it pulls up a random insult for you from <laughs> Luther's, uh, <laughs> from Luther's corpus. And it's, uh, yeah, if you have 30 seconds of your life that you don't mind completely wasting. All right. That's where, that's where we'll go. It's a great thing to look up. <laughs> on, on a different note, why, why your despisal of Twitter as a medium? What is it that you don't like about it? <laughs> I think that there's almost no thought worth expressing in 140 characters. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, it's, um, it, and it seems to make even the, the most profound theologian sound like a Chinese fortune cookie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's just something wrong with that. So I don't, let me put it this way. I don't regard it as sinful to have a Twitter account. Yeah. Um, I, I, I was once persuaded by the seminary. They, they, they got me to do a Twitter account uh -huh. under a fake name. Okay. And s pretty quickly it was rumbled that it was me under this fake name and all my enemies started to friend me on it and link to insults <laughs> on me. And I just thought, you know, I don't mind people insulting me. I believe in the First Amendment. You're free to say what you want, but I'm not sure that I want to provide people with a venue to enhance That's that. right. I understand that. So, so I abandoned it after about three okay. weeks, I think. Yeah. All right. Well, well, last question on the Luther front. If there is one kind of um, hallmark characteristic that you think stands out the most about Luther, kind of one defining, I know he's a complicated person, but what do you think the defining mark of Luther's legacy is? Of his legacy? Uh, I think it has to be justification by grace through faith, yeah. theologically. Um, culturally, I think he's proof, as is Spurgeon, that Protestant theologians can be funny. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's good. And actually, I actually think there's a theological purpose for humor, and I think Luther exemplifies it wonderfully. So if, if, if there were two things that I would want people to take away from Luther, it's his understanding of justification and the way he deploys humor in his theological polemics and discussions. Excellent. Have you written or uh, lectured on the humor thing at all? Um, I've got, there's a little section at the end of the book where I deal with humor. I recommend Eric Gritch's book, The Wit of Martin Luther, which is just a very small book on, on his humor. I think there is a lecture. I did a lecture on, uh, through Westminster, I think Luther is troubled prophet. And I do address some of the humor issues there. To me, humor is what keeps us all in perspective. The, in a fallen world, the world, not as it should be, there's, the world is both tragic and it's a comedy. Uh, and there's a close connection, I think, between tragedy and comedy. Both tragedy and comedy present a world that, is, that ultimately makes no sense. Yeah. And we're left with the, op- you know, the option of do we laugh at it or do we cry? And I think for Christians of all people, we should understand we live in a world which is by turns tragic and comic. Yeah. It's always interested me that after a funeral, when you go back for the wake or the meal afterwards, people are making all sorts of inappropriate jokes. Yeah. <laughs> faced with the the inevitability of our own deaths we've stood by somebody's graveside and, and looked in a way into our own graves there how do we cope with it well we weep at the graveside and we laugh at the wake mm. life is life in a fallen world is not as it should be it makes ultimately makes no sense yeah in itself and i think the two human responses are laughter and, and weeping that's good. And that's a great place to end. Uh, Dr. Truman, thanks so much for your time and uh, yeah, thanks for, the, for, me for the great book. I've enjoyed our conversation. Thanks very much. My thanks to Carl for taking the time to chat and to you for taking the time to listen. As always, I hope you found it helpful. Don't forget you can stop by my blog at ryanhugley.com for ways that you and I can stay connected via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you'll also find any additional show notes that you may want from today's episode. Until next week, I count it an honor to learn with you. I love you and thanks for listening.